1: Let's just be real here. I mean, most parents condition their kids and they say, you show up and you follow the rules. You please me, make me happy. I don't like your authentic self. You hit things, you're messy, you yell. So that conditions us to say, oh, the way in which I get love, care, and attention, the way I feel belonging in this world is to please the people around me.
0: Hi, I'm Mark Groves. I'm a human connection specialist and founder of Create the Love. At an early point in my life, I became obsessed with understanding relationships, the intricacies of how people connect. And through this exploration, I have created a life and a business dedicated to learning out loud and exploring how we interact with each other and the world. This podcast brings the world's top thought leaders, spiritual luminaries, physicians, scientists, researchers, best-selling authors, and health and wellness experts under one roof to discuss the good, the bad, the messy and of course, the beautiful parts of the human experience. Welcome to the Mark Groves Podcast. I can't wait to dive in with you. Welcome, Kayler Betts, to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. Honored to be here, brother. Man, I'm so excited to have you on here. So for you listening, Kayler is the podcast host of the Mental Wealth Podcast and also a mental wealth coach. And I think when we consider wealth, we usually think of money. And what does it mean to, I guess, have a rich mind or like to have mental wealth?
1: Yeah, you know, I came up with that term because, you know, we've heard so much about financial wealth and we can look at it in the same realm and then through the same lens in that mental wealth is really just an abundance of mental health. And why I've devoted my life to helping people attain mental wealth is because I didn't have a lot of it for most of my life. I used to say that I was in a battle with my mind for most of my life. I've spent a lot of time really breaking down what mental wealth really is or what most people would call mental health. What I think mental wealth ultimately is or an abundance of mental health, it's two things that we're all looking for. It's inner peace and purpose, inner peace and purpose. And I believe, you know, there's things that I think I know in this world. And then there's things that I know I know. And I have pretty unwavering confidence that when we have the, if we look at those two things as like buckets in our life, Mark, like inner peace and purpose, and those buckets are meant to be filled. And if we fill them, we have an abundance of mental health you know, these two factors, these, this inner peace and purpose are just absolutely crucial to living our highest quality of life. And someone might ask, well, what really is inner peace, right? And I think that's important to break down as well, too. Inner peace is not that we don't experience depression, anger, sadness, you know, guilt, jealousy, fill in the blank, negative emotion. It's that these aren't persistent. That's what makes us human is to experience these sometimes, but it's that Mm -hmm. they're not persistent. They don't get in the way of us achieving our highest potential. The other bucket, which is purpose, you know, I think needs to be broken down a little bit as well, too. You know, one thing I've really learned is that if we don't have a mission, if we don't have something that we're striving towards, something that lights our soul on fire, some sort of North Star, then we are not giving ourselves a fighting chance to have an abundance of mental health, right? So those two factors really need to be present. And that's what I've really, you know, broken down mental wealth
0: as is those two factors present. Yeah. When I think about a statement, I heard Jonathan Haidt say recently, he talked about how every human has a God-sized hole in them, like that we're all trying to fill this space within us to be connected to something more than us. And, you know, that's framed, that could be framed in religion, that could be framed in a lot of ways. And that's probably how cults are created is the exploitation of that space. I think of that when you talk about purpose, I think of it very similarly. Like, I think it's a recent thing that your work can be aligned with what is your passion. Not to say that you can't cultivate passions in a workplace that is maybe more nine to five ish, maybe more traditional, you know, because you could be passionate about people and be bagging groceries and really get to fulfill that space, like leave better people better than you found them. And I think it's David data who talks about how, if you make your woman more important than your purpose, then she won't trust you. And I think this is just true for everybody that if your purpose is another person, like your relational partner, It feels like a codependent purpose, you know, and someone might say, no, my purpose is to make my partner happy. Oh God. Like I just get worried about what that is, but I'm curious your thoughts on purpose and how do we begin to even discover it or step into it more fully and fill that bucket?
1: Yeah. So I think that, You know, a lot of people would say, just to backstep a little bit, a lot of people would say, well, isn't inner peace the only goal, right? Like, if we have inner peace, what else do we really need, right? And I would argue that. I would say, you know, even Buddhist monks have to come out of their caves from meditating and do some shit eventually, right? And they need to make life their playground, right? Now, I think I totally agree with what you're saying and that I would be very concerned that if someone... You know, in terms of that purpose bucket, if, if really all the water that was filling the, that bucket was some sort of external factor in terms of, you know, an intimate or romantic partner, or even just a regular social connection. So I break it down into three different categories. I think we need purpose in relationships. We absolutely do. You know, we are biologically made. It's in our DNA to connect with others, you know, just socially intimately and romantically and lovingly at the end of the day. Number two is I think that we need a hobby, which is something outside of our mission, outside of our work, outside of relationships that we just do for us. And that can really bring us into alignment with more of a higher purpose. And then lastly, and this is what you're alluding to, is we all need that mission, right? We need that thing that's, you know, it can't be in a romantic partner right? It can't be in any other person. It has to be something that, like I said, lights your soul on fire and makes you feel like you're really aligned with something outside of you. And what I find is a lot of people could really reduce, and I experienced this in my life, a lot of people could reduce a ton of anxiety, a ton of mental suffering, if they had that mission, because you know what it does, it takes the focus off of you. And it puts it out there into something that's greater, greater. Than you, And it creates way less space to sit around and worry about shit, right? Because you're too focused on something that's beyond you. And you know what? It has two factors. Number one, it's something that you're really good at, right? Because as humans, we really enjoy doing something we're very good at. And the second thing that it's mixed with is being useful to others or the world, serving others or the world. And often people will come to me and say, "Kaylor, I haven't found my purpose. How do you find your purpose? And I say, you're asking the wrong question. I believe we go out and we create it, right? We have to try things, right? And we're either going to step into something and it's going to be the thing and we win, or it's not going to be the thing and we learn. And then we shift, we pivot into the right direction. Now, to go back to what you were saying, Mark, you know, it's just really attractive to be with someone. I think it just exemplifies security, right? It maybe even exemplifies you as maybe higher in the social status. Again, I don't know what the roots are and I, I would really love your opinion on that. But it's just very attractive to be with someone who has their soul lit on fire, who is chasing some sort of North Star, who is doing something they're really good at and is very useful to the world and to others.
0: Yeah, I like your postulation there on the evolutionary reason, because you think if someone's purpose is other people, I think is great, like to be in service of other people, but just the relationship, then there's not just so much pressure on that one thing like that's an immense thing to feel. And you're right. Like if someone is in alignment with their purpose and they're pursuing it or discovering it or whatever, there is something so beautiful about that. Like something sexy about that. I think regardless the gender, you know, it's just like seeing someone who's so committed to something that matters to them. And my friend, John Morrow, when I had him on the podcast, he said, if you want to find what matters to you, find what breaks your heart. And I think about that a lot of What created my path to this work was a broken heart, but literally watching other people feel like they were invalidated or somehow less worthy because their relationship had ended, as opposed to that being what a sign of alignment, what a sign of of love to leave something and choose oneself in whatever capacity that means. So I like how you're saying it. So relationships, having a hobby and having a mission. And relationships, I mean, I think belonging is it's so core to our health. You know, like if we don't have belonging or just a sense of good connectivity, it really impacts our health. I like how you split it into those three things.
1: Look, I think it's really important to acknowledge a little bit of evolution here. You know, for most of human history, if we didn't have belonging, if we weren't accepted by the tribe and the people around us, that was life or death. We were thrown to the wolves, right? So I think yeah.
0: that maybe literally
1: yeah literally there there's numerous factors i think to what makes us you know feel great to belong we talk about this idea of the beauty of codependence as well like sure this can be unhealthy but it's also completely what makes you human to depend on other people and that connection mm-hmm. i mean we we need that but you know, I think that our nervous system, there's something that and I felt this even, you know, maybe a good example, Mark, would be like, you know, and I know you get it as well, too. The hate that you get, you know, for speaking your mind on social media, right? We have this negativity bias and and it's like one comment can really stand out if it's critical of you amongst all these amazing, beautiful, supportive comments. There's something that I know for me happens in my nervous system when that you know, and I have to remind myself that I'm, I'm safe. Like Kayla, you're safe. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just Sally Sue on Instagram who, you know, (laughs) is projecting her own bullshit out onto you. Right. So I think that we have to acknowledge that it just really activates that parasympathetic nervous response to feel a sense of belonging. And ultimately we're just so primed for survival. We just want to stay alive and safe. So I think that, you know, we have to acknowledge that, You know, there's many factors, but that's certainly one of them in why it's really nice to feel a sense of belonging.
0: Yeah. And the social dilemma they talk about, they have that one line where they say that no human is wired to be able to hold the opinion of 10,000 people, let alone 5,000. You know, there's, I forget what uh, Dunbar's number, I think is the number of like, we're actually only capable of having, I think it's 150. Is it 150? I thought it was 200, but yeah, it might be 150. Somewhere around there, like it's a lot less than we think, but like intimate relationships, not romantic, that'd be complex, but (laughs) you know, like getting to know and understand someone's story and self, we're only capable of about 200. And yeah, I resonate with what you're saying because that's why when I see someone speak their mind or step towards whatever it is, that is their passion, their purpose, their, their desire to express, and that could just be interrelationally a boundary when I see someone do it for the first time, I'm just so enamored. I'm so inspired because like you were saying, that's like they are going against thousands of years of generational pressure that says stick to the script, like stay in line because if you don't you're axed. And I think it's a really a more recent evolutionary thing that now with the internet, which is really the decentralization of wisdom, but also the decentralization of community Mm. that we raise our voice in whatever that means. And all of a sudden we can find each other. And I think that's where you realize that you don't share a boundary or a thought in order for the other person to validate it. That's the old metric. It's you do it to hear yourself. And when you do that, then all of a sudden you realize like, I'm the one who has to love my thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. And sometimes I won't because they might be anger, they might be unfair, they might be judgmental, but I'm the one who has to. And that becomes a whole different measurement. And I think, like, I've been really inspired by your presence on social media for the last couple of years is when we became acquainted, just your willingness to at least have the conversations. And, you know, I think when we cease having the conversations, we actually become part of cancel culture even though it's not intentional, but it's like, that's the problem with silencing dissent is that it gives the illusion of consensus. You know what I mean? Yeah. And
1: Mark, to go back to, yeah, very well said. And to go back to the inner peace part yeah. of this abundance of mental yeah. health,
0: how do you find inner peace and do all that?
1: Come on, please. Let me, let me, let me tell you one thing. <laughs> Uh, that's in relation to what you're talking about. I gained an incredible amount of inner peace. You know, sometimes you have to get worse to get better. And when I put out a video that went viral and I got, you know, near death threats and there was a petition in my hometown to get my Instagram shut down. Are you serious? Yeah. A petition
0: was... to get your Instagram oh, yeah. taken down? Oh, yeah.
1: And if you ever want, just uh, just look up Kayla Betts on Twitter. Like my, my haters are very passionate about their hate for me. And I didn't eat for a week. You know, I really didn't because yeah. i would never experienced that kind of reputational consequences, right. Or social criticism and public scrutiny. I had never experienced that before. Without the ability to really protect yourself, you know, cause. Exactly. And I was actually by, so this was in the midst of COVID. I was actually in Kelowna by myself. Right. So it was, you know, I, I didn't eat for a week, admittedly. I, I, wow. well, I, I shouldn't You were say, fasting.
0: You were fasting. I, I, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I was doing. Isn't that cool now? <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, yeah. Day I
1: wasn't eating. It wasn't like, you know, literally it was, it was, I was very, I struggled to eat. I didn't have an appetite yeah. because my stress hormones, my adrenaline, neuropinephrine, cortisol was very high and it suppressed my appetite. So what I mean by sometimes you have to get worse to get better. There is something to facing your greatest fear Yes, and waking up the next day or week and realizing, wait, I'm all in one piece. The sun rose this morning and I'm still okay. And you know what, Mark? That gave me a lot of confidence because it was like I've gone through what I've always been afraid of. And here of, you are, and here you are of being abandoned and rejected yeah. by a large mass of people, right? And I had cousins who I share Christmas dinner with who were going on social media and criticizing me. Like it was intense, and it, it came close to home as well too. But like I said, when you get through that. It makes you build this resilience that I think i had been waiting for for a long time.
0: For the majority of my adult life, I've been searching for a tasty protein powder. I've been searching for an amazing protein powder, one that doesn't just add protein to my shake, but like adds flavor and creaminess and deliciousness and all those things and I'm happy to have found that in the Organifi Complete Protein. It's organic, it's vegan, it's also a multivitamin with digestive enzyme, so I kinda like that stack. 20 grams of protein, all in one delicious, easy to mix shake. It's got seven superfoods, it's 100% organic, no soy, no whey. And it helps curve cravings. It contains half of the daily recommended value of selenium, vitamin C, D, E, A, and 35% of your daily iron. And all of these vitamins are from whole foods. And so it's got pea protein, quinoa, pumpkin seed, coconut, which contains MCTs, vanilla bean for the vanilla flavor, five different digestive enzymes in every serving. It helps you digest your food, prevent the bloating and the gas, and absorb more of the nutrients that you eat throughout your day. So if you want to save 20% off both chocolate and vanilla, go to Organifi.com slash create the love and Organifi is spelt O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. So go check it out. I like that you said you faced your greatest fear that maybe you didn't know consciously that you had, like exile, cancel, you know. I think we all... On a deep level, why we don't, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, why we don't step to the edges of, of like creation of what we want to do for our living or our dreams. Like we don't step towards those things because we are terrified of what the people we love and, and even maybe like the childhood bully that still follows us on Facebook or has a Facebook. If people are still on Facebook, it's like we're so afraid of what someone else thinks. And because of that, we stay in this box. And I think of what my friend, Terry Colt says, she has this line where she says like, when you stay in the box, like when you don't share your thoughts, feelings, when you are not expressing, you are colluding with the smaller version of the other person too. And I'm like, Oh, cause you know, like you faced the ultimate human threat, which is not belonging. And I love that you said you woke up in the morning and you saw, hey, fuck, I'm still here. Like, whoa, shit. And you see the sunrise and you're still whole, if not more whole, because you're in integrity with whatever it is your self-expression is. And you realize that that's actually home. That is so well said that that is actually
1: home. It's bringing you know, it's it's being bringing your life back to your truest authentic self. I think that there's a lot of factors, but one of the main ones is just look at how we're conditioned, right? You know, I've learned a lot about the subconscious mind and how it's 95% of our thoughts, ideas, actions, and emotions. And really the code that runs our subconscious mind is our beliefs, right? That we formulated from our environment and our experiences primarily in our childhood, and that's running the show. I mean, that's ultimately what the inner child is, is it's just a set of belief systems that we developed as a child that are still running the show. But think about how we got conditioned, right? I mean, and this is no, not to parents. I mean, I'm not a parent. I know it's really difficult to parent because I have a niece and nephew and I've been able to see a fraction of what it takes. But let's just be real here. I mean, most parents condition their kids and they say, you know, you show up and you follow the rules. You please me, make me happy. I don't like your authentic self. You hit things, you're messy, you yell. So I want you to suppress that and show up and make mommy and daddy happy. And if you do, maybe we'll give you our love, care and attention, which is what the kid wants the most. But if you don't, And you are your authentic self and you hit things and you're messy and you do whatever you want. I'm going to starve you of my love, care and attention. I'm going to put you in your room for a timeout. I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to ignore you. Right. So that conditions us to say, Oh, the way in which I get love, care and attention, the way I feel belonging in this world is to please the people around me. So I think what ultimately happens is we get conditioned in that way. And then even as adults, We say, well, I have to show up in a way that's convenient for all the people around me, aligns with their wants and desires, and I'm going to suppress my needs. I'm going to suppress my
0: truest, authentic self because that doesn't matter as much. I've seen that so much of that weaponized in the last two years, you know, and on both ends of a decision or a choice, you know, but it's certainly been weaponized. I think the government of Canada, I can speak more specifically to, but the people listening are from everywhere. It's like the government of Canada has been very mindful of its language to be able to weaponize belonging. I don't know till we've sort of taken that leap or that is the leap, like something matters to us so much. Like helping people with relationships mattered to me so much that I found something that was so much more important to me than self-abandonment. Like it became the rudder and the fuel that said, I'm willing to actually... Face criticism. I'm willing to face this somewhat. I don't want to say that I just dove right off the fucking cliff, but you know, I was willing to face it. That was the fuel that said alignment, which I was starting to feel is so much more important than belonging. And it's the illusion of belonging because it's not actual belonging. If it requires me to not be me, that's not belonging. And you know, I think one thing that I struggled with. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on your own experience, but also when you work with people. One thing that I struggled with was taking responsibility for the fact that I had created who people held me to want to still be. Like, I was mad that they weren't allowing me to transform into this other thing, which really was a story I had. And it doesn't mean I didn't get some negative feedback or pushback. But I also realized that it was my responsibility to allow a lot of the people who were close to me the opportunity t- to have information into my transformation. You know, they were like, what the fuck is happening to you? Like you used to talk about a blowjob you got on the weekend. And here you are talking about, you know, being in integrity with your sexuality. And, and it was, you know, it was a very important, fast transformation, honestly, you know, and I realized like I had created this image and that was hard to reconcile and take responsibility for it was easier to say they just don't accept this new version of me meanwhile they're like i just don't know how that where the fuck did this come from you know it's prioritizing also
1: just the objective truth right it's prioritizing that over you know what's the narrative out there what's convenient for others or belonging and acceptance right and i think that that takes conscious effort we have to always be like hey, what is the objective truth here let's try and check my biases let's check my emotions you know and let's just really push out there what we believe people need to hear in that moment you know what an interesting concept when you say taking responsibility for the old version of you that you've created that people see you as and then you know ultimately uh, shifting and changing that for me it's being very honest and I've um and just transparent that i i used to really filter my words i used to when i would be on a podcast you know i there'd be things i would wanna say and out of fear of being canceled or you know not accepted or criticized judged rejected whatever it was you know i suppressed those things and i've been very transparent about that and i believe that's really all you can do is just at this point say hey i know you probably don't really like Uh, Or some of you may not like what I'm saying because it's so different than what I used to talk about. But I used to talk about things that I believe to be safe. It's not that I didn't mean those things, it's just I wasn't Mm -hmm. truly able to be my authentic self. And I'm sorry about that. I apologize because I might have brought you in a little bit and now you don't really like what you're getting. And, you know, I, I think that's kind of how we take responsibility is just being very transparent about how you know, we've changed. We're more committed to the objective truth or to our authentic self, even if it's something
0: people won't like. I had not really thought about that either. Like the process of, it's almost like when I explore why I didn't want to, it was because I was afraid that they might not accept this new version of me. So it was easier to just say that they didn't or were resistant to it. When really, when I spent time with friends and when and they asked questions because they were thoughtful about it and they were concerned that they were like, Oh, okay. And some of them, you know, didn't trust this new version of me yet. And they actually had the right to that. I spent 32 years making people believe I was somebody else. And I was that person until I realized that there was like an unexcavated part of myself. Like a, as you were saying, like I was having conversations that I knew would get applause from and give me male status or like, no one would see that I was hurting or that I was scared or that I was sensitive. And you realize when you're pushed to that edge of like, can you keep up the charade in some ways? Do you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: A hundred percent. And you know what? It's, it's really difficult because the consequences, they really actually are high. We talk about evolution and how, you know, we've always lived in this environment where it was like life or death, maybe literally if we got, you know, Booted out of our tribes, or we had a lot of people that disliked us. But I would say there's still that that danger still exists, maybe not in the same sense. It's maybe not life or death most often. But it's like losing your job potentially. It's, you know, being abandoned by maybe your followers and this is your business. This is how you make a living, right? Right. It's it's your family. I mean, so it's also a mental health there's a mental health component to it as well, too. I mean, you lose people that's close to you. You know, how many people, I don't know about you, but I've heard so many people who have like, my mom won't talk to me or my my sister won't talk to me. And like, they're like my best friend. And because of how I, you know, view all of the things that are going on in the world, they won't even, they don't even want me to come over for Christmas dinner or, you know, whatever. And that's really difficult. So the consequences are still really high. So I think that we we should give not only other people grace, but ourselves grace. Like I know for me, I give myself grace because I know it's really hard to go out onto Instagram. Most people have a hard time going on Instagram and just making one video, let alone putting out a video where, you know, a bunch of people are going to see it and it's counter narrative and you know, you're going to get hate from it. So (laughs) I think we, we do
0: need to have a level of grace in that regard, but maybe just owning up to it is the answer. I mean, I wish people knew how many videos I record before the one sometimes I put out when it's like, I want to be very mindful of my words, that I'm not being divisive, that I'm. Because a lot of the feedback I got in the last couple of years from people close to me, which there was some validity to, is that in the feeling of feeling segregated or uh, judged for, for making a, a different medical decision. I used words and shared memes that were divisive themselves. Like I wasn't shaming the choice to for someone to go get the V. I was feeling that the choice not to was totally eliminated from the options and still be a good person. And so I felt like I was in a bind, like where I, in my own integrity, just knew that that wasn't the right choice for me. And I respected, and I mean, some of the people I love the most in the world have chosen that. But in in being angry because I felt judged, I judged people saying like they've fallen for something, or they, which I don't actually true truly believe that. I think what I really felt and still feel is that the moralization of the choice and the correlation to values that people have adopted. I get it, like I'm angry that it's it's true that people have adopted that, and it's a false dichotomy. It's not true that if you chose not to get it, you're a bad person, obviously that's not true. It shows me just how important it is that I am also a bridge in the space between binaries, and God, that's the hardest work, man. That's the hardest work, yeah. I totally agree and I think that
1: there's been a lot of times in this last I suppose year because that's how long I've been just over a year how long I've been really speaking out about all this and being counter narrative. I've had to really self-reflect a lot on my content and one of the biggest things that comes up is do you have the right degree of humility and I think that that is in your approach like It's one thing to speak out and I have very strong opinions about what's going on. I think a lot of it is almost criminal. Well, I believe a lot of it is criminal, you know, so I have a really uh, strong opinion about a lot of the things that are happening. But I think one thing we all could use is a dose of humility. And I have to remind myself that a lot because it's easy for me to go out and just subconsciously fight fire with fire. I always want to remind myself that at the end of the day, I'm really fighting for the value of freedom and you know autonomy over your own body and you know medical freedom and what a foreign concept yeah physical health right metabolic health like go out and take care of yourself because not only is it going to increase your chances or sorry lower your chances of a severe outcome of you know COVID but uh, it's also going to make every other aspect of your life better right I also have been really preaching and advocating for mental health in all of this which i think has right. been completely almost to a, a entire extent ignored right so i really oh. just always like go back to like Kate, okay, what is your message here kayler don't fight fire with fire don't promote divisiveness or don't certainly start any sort of divisiveness and be humble when it comes to your approach and it's hard. It's hard when you have, you know, you're behind a screen and you could put anything out there and you also know it's going to rile people up. When you have that power, when you have the following to do so, it sometimes subconsciously comes out. And admittedly, I've fallen victim to that, but I really try and check myself and and come from a good place so that I can rest my head on my pillow at the end of
0: the night and be proud at the end of it all, how I showed up. Yeah. I've been asking myself, is it useful? Is it kind? You know, those two, Because, you know, when you're like meeting fire with fire, it's like uh, Byron Katie has this line where she says, you can't have war with only one person, you know, like as soon as one person sets down the arms. And I think that I've really had to learn to cultivate that space of unconditional love and not going, not going to battle, but rather, you know, it's like having a a war rally, you know, like an anti-war rally, you know, as opposed to a peace rally, you know, like just seeing where are we putting our attention, our energy. And you spoke to the, in some ways, total abandonment of the conversation about mental health, mental wealth. And I agree with you. I, I actually, from the very beginning, and anyone listening to the podcast who's listened for a while knows, I was very outspoken from the very beginning that the cost of things like lockdowns would exceed the benefits, and you could certainly say that after the first two weeks to flatten the curve. I really, I said, I remember, I think, on a podcast, I, I said, I'm, I'm on the record, like I want to be on the record for this, and I can now look back and say that I'm happy I was on the record with that. That, 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 that age well,
1: that age well, <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> as opposed to some other things. And really, like, how do we begin? Because. In some ways, it angers me that mental health was put to such a back burner. If anything, gaslit and dismissed the importance of it. And also metabolic health dismissed. Like you could get screened and filtered and have your Instagram or your YouTube if you talked about the immune benefits of certain supplements or exercise, which you don't even need. It's so obvious that those things are true. And I get the usefulness, you know, the importance of validated scientific information. You know, I'm not saying everyone should just go spout off everything. Where do we even begin to process and move through? And how do you suggest people find, I guess, inner peace would be obviously very correlated to that. How do we begin to find that? And what are some of the fastest, most effective ways to generate mental wealth and, and mental health?
1: Yeah, so a a really interesting concept that I learned that I think has a lot to do with our incompetency of how we've dealt with the last two years at like a governmental level and a healthcare system level comes from, I actually got this out of uh, James Clear's book, uh, Atomic Habits. He talks about how scholars have really observed that for most of human history, We lived in a immediate return environment. So what does that mean? That means that most things that gave you a return were immediate, right? So most of the things you did gave you an immediate return. So for example, you went, you killed an animal, you had food for your family. You went and you started a fire, your family was warm. You were running from a rock slide, you were safe, right? And that's how we've been primed for so much of human history, right? And I th- still think that that's in our DNA. But now if you look at the environment we live in now, think about all of the things that give us an immediate return, right? They're all the bad things. Well, not maybe not all, but most of them, right? It's like, a lot of them. you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll, right? It's like gambling, <laughs> porn, you know, like yeah. those are the things. Instagram, that us- like, yeah, exactly. But also lockdowns, masks, the jab, right? Like these are all quick things. They're supposed to be quick things, right?
0: You know, like they, you're saying that those policies or decisions give us immediate, they immediately attend to our anxieties. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying that we are so primed,
1: right? Or at least this is the theory that we are so primed for immediate return environment, yeah. meaning everything we do for health, And wellness and everything, at least from a governmental level, the higher up level is always the quick thing, right? Whereas what I think, and you asked, like, so where do we start when it comes to, you know, inner peace and, you know, mental health and physical health? Well, look macro, right? So people who achieve really good mental health and have an abundance of that, have an abundance of metabolic health and just success in general, highest quality of life, They make decisions and take actions based on long-term thinking, based on long-term delayed results. So look at all the things that have a delayed return. That's the environment we look at. We live in now. It's going to the gym. Well, that has a delayed return because you go for the first time, you're going to feel like shit after, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, and like no this one, hill sucks. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And and even eating real food, if you're used to eating processed and packaged food all the time, you start to eat real food. You're not going to feel great to start. You're going to get a delayed return. Meditation, right? I remember the first time I ever meditated, I sat down for five minutes and I was even more anxious than I normally was, <laughs> <look>, right? <laughs> I was like, when does this shit end? Exactly. So, Mark, you asked, what are some practical things? Look, I like to keep it simple because of the paradox of choice. I don't want to give people so many options, opportunities and choices. If you are just for a lack of a better term stuck when it comes to your mental health and your physical health, go back to the basics and start making decisions and taking actions on things that are aligned with your long-term values and commitments rather than just doing what feels good in the moment, because that's often not the things that are going to cultivate,
0: you know, the inner peace and purpose of mental health. That invitation to be able to sit in a pause, like between comfort, immediacy, because that's everything. That's relationships. That's that's learning how to self-regulate. You know, I even think when you talk about how things like lockdowns, mess, Um, the jab, there are immediate ways to quell the anxiety of what, and I'm not, and again, for you listening, it's easy to think we're saying they don't have value or we're criticized because we've also been programmed that any question of an immediacy about this one thing, which actually is speaking to a lot of things these days, that the immediate assumption is the dialogue about it is the disagreement with it. Mm. And that's not true. I mean, I think it's a, it's a real damage to mental health that, We have deleted the very beautiful space that lives between binaries, and so I was listening to this podcast with Jonathan Haidt the other day, and it was called "Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid," and it's with Barry Weiss, and we'll put the link to it in the show notes. But what the what he said, which I really loved, is that he said it was a quote from his rabbi: "Questioning is sacred, dissent is productive." If you start to debate, you may discover something that transcends the binary. You may discover a third opinion, and it'll inevitably be wiser than the first two. And his argument is that the eradication of dissent makes the people who are eradicating it stupid as well. I know that language is probably like a little more, no, it's not too assertive. It's exactly the truth that we require these spaces, but your mental health invitation To learn how to sit into a space of leaving what's familiar, moving to expansive habits rather than ones that make us contract. I I have a friend who once called like their choices are either pro-life or pro-death. And it really is that simple, isn't it? Like you think about it, not to say that a nice Putin isn't just so beautifully pro-life when it's delicious. It's just five Putins is (laughs) pro-death. No offense to the Quebecers.
1: Yeah, for sure, and you know that question of like, is what I am about to do going to serve my highest quality life, or is it mm. going to distract me away from my greatest good? And just like what you are saying, you put it even more simply: it's either pro life or pro choice, or uh, sorry,
0: pro pro life or pro death. <laughs> Don't get into pro choice <laughs> you know, okay, that's, that's a whole, whole, other whole other podcast. We can't handle that on this one podcast, yeah, too. Okay. That's <laughs>
1: exactly, <laughs> um, but that takes consciousness, right? So you mentioned the term familiar, our subconscious is obsessed with the familiar. It just wants to relive that pattern, that familiar pattern that you've been living in because familiar equals certainty and certainty equals safety and survival, which it ultimately cares about the most. So I think I'll bring up Viktor Frankl's quote that says between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our ability to respond. In that response lies our growth and our freedom. So what he's saying is... You know, as soon as you become conscious in any moment, you've created this space. Now you're like the observer of what's going on internally, like, ooh, that makes me anxious or like, ooh, I feel like eating the cookie right now. And now you've created that space. And in that space, you can respond as opposed to just unconsciously react like we normally do, like pick up the cookie and eat. Right. And guess what? Sometimes eating the cookie does contribute to your highest quality of life right? Depending on where you're at, right? Maybe that is what's going to serve your greatest good. But if you do that decision consciously, then at least you're responding and you're living intentionally and you're choosing, you're making a calculated decision rather than just unconsciously reacting.
0: I love that quote from Richter Frankl. Yeah. How transformative increasing the space between your trigger and your choice. Like, But if you could do that about everything, like everything, like Because I think we've all been exhausted, traumatized, just like constant fear, 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 fear. And the media has certainly participated in that. And it feels like we're sort of down to our reserves in terms of emotional capacity. And the last two years, especially, I think in the States, the political experience in the last while has already exacerbated this. And then it just led into COVID. And it's like, if we can find it now, cause this is like when the tools matter, you know, like this is when it matters. And to be able to step into this space of choosing pathways that are into our expansive state, despite the circumstances
1: that we're in. Yeah. And you know, you bring up a good point. It's, it's really difficult to get out of that condition program. Like you know, that Victor Franco quote, although it's super powerful, it also is an oversimplification of that process, right? Like it's, it's really difficult. If that's the first time you've even been exposed to that concept of creating that space and becoming conscious, it's really a hard pattern to break out of. But I would say to that, and this is what I often say to clients who have a hard time, who maybe are just sitting down to meditate and they even get more anxious or they can't you know, they just, they they just are so reactive to their triggers is it's similar to like learning how to golf, right? I mean, like you can't expect to be really good at it to start learning how to golf is really difficult. You're going to have to be really conscious of how your body moves through that swing. Every single moment, the way your wrist goes, the way your shoulders turn, where your hips are, you have to be very conscious and you won't be good. You'll hit that ball. It'll go up, down, all around, but you got to go to the driving range every day and just, you know, let it flow right over force and just let that swing flow and be at the range every day. And sooner or later, that ball will get a little more up and a little more up into the air and it'll get a little straighter and a little straighter the more you do it. So just have grace with yourself and just just practice these little low risk opportunities to be a little more conscious and be a little more responsive, over reactive. And slowly, but surely, you will
0: retrain that conditioning that you have. Being able to do that and realize as Steve Jobs, who says like it's easy to connect the dots when you look back, yeah, we don't realize if we say today I'm going to commit to being one percent better. That's literally not very much. you know <laughs> that's a small commitment. but like you know, you add that up over a year and you're three sixty five percent better. And you don't realize that when you're practicing golf, because I certainly don't feel like I'm 1% better when I'm swinging golf, a golf club. But the same is true about observation of reactivity. Like I remember the first time I didn't react in a moment in a way that was so automated for me. And I was so proud of myself. Like I, I actually couldn't believe what was on the other side of that moment that I'd never lived. I recognize how scary that is for people to live in a no- new moment, to live in a new self, to be different.
1: You bring up such a good point, Mark. Like it reminds me of what Dr. Nicola Perra will get her clients to do to start is just become a thought detective and just be the observer of your thoughts and don't even worry about the response, right? So just simply maybe for 30 days, simply have a, a, a book. And just be the observer of your thoughts and notice what's coming up, what emotions, what ideas, what thoughts are coming up. And that's the first step. That's what creates that space is when you're conscious of those things. And if that's where we start, we're doing the first step. And that's a really
0: important thing. If we start with just becoming a thought detective, because of course, like, what do we do? We are like, I'm just going to do everything. Like, I'm just going to quit everything that's bad for me. And I'm going to start everything that's good for me. And you were talking about the unconscious mind before. It shows you how we can logically know we want things. And yet we never choose them. Like, we can logically know we want certain life outcomes, certain relational outcomes. Like, I know that I choose unavailable people. And then it's like next unavailable person comes along and we're like, sign me up, not this, this one. I'll do it next time, you know? Shows you how much the unconscious is, as you were saying, addicted to the familiar. And just breaking it down, one of the best strategies that I
1: have for any, you know, for what we're talking about and in particular, something like procrastination is the two minute rule where, or the two minute principle, I should say, where just like, doesn't matter what you're trying to do, whether it's going to the gym and working out, whether it's like, you know, meal prep or whatever. Just focus on every day you have to do the first two minutes of that activity, right? And that might sound kind of like, wait, I'm going to go to the gym for two minutes. Well, maybe, but it's a lot less daunting. It's more digestible to your brain when you say, you know what, I'm just going to go for two minutes. And if I just go for two minutes, maybe I'll bail out, but I'm at least going to go for two minutes. Or maybe I'm just going to spend two minutes packing my bag and putting on my gym clothes. And if I end up deciding once I get up and do that, that I'm going to stop after two minutes, I'm going to give myself the grace to do so. But you want to know what really usually happens is you get up, you go and you spend two minutes on it. And you're like, I'm already here. I'm into it. Yeah. And then, you know, you finish it off. So that has actually really changed because I've been a procrastinator. It's really changed that for me is to just really break it down. Maybe it doesn't apply. Maybe the two minutes doesn't apply for the activity you want to do, but just break it down into a smaller chunk, a cold shower, 30 seconds. Say, I'm just going to do 30 seconds. And, so you
0: know, fucking valuable. Yeah, People do not know. I rant about cold plunging and cold showering all the time because we don't know how incredibly valuable that is. Talk about a delayed return. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Immediately you're like, I'm dying. I'm gonna die. And then you're like, Holy shit, I'm vibrating. And
1: people think it's nuts. They're like, Why on earth would <laughs> you step into cold therapy? And you know what I say, Mark? And I don't know how this comes across. You can let me know if this, you know, sounds pretentious or whatever, fill-in-the-blank negative uh uh word. But I would say that. I feel like if I can't stand in a cold shower or in cold water for 5 minutes or I can't sit in a cold tub for 5 minutes what the fuck else am I going to be able to do with my life like if I can't even do that and that's the point of it yes you know it's it's to test your
0: resilience which in ultimately builds your resilience yeah cuz we don't necessarily have the ability to regulate and observe and then build the grit the grit that creates and expand itself to go through that two minutes you're talking about. This, these moments where the return's not there and we don't realize that the freezing, the moment that we're like cold is actually expanding us because you are definitely a different person when you leave the cold tub than you also have smaller parts of your body, but you're definitely a different person when you get out. And I think one of the most effective forms of personal expansion has been cold water therapy for me. Yeah. And it, you know, people say it's crazy. And I say, yeah, that's the point. Yeah. I don't think it's pretentious. I think what Tony Robbins says when he talks about cold water therapy, because he does it every morning is he says that he has a principle when he, that he doesn't negotiate with his fears that aren't real. And I think that's like, if we could all not to negate or invalidate fears that we have that are about not belonging or, or stepping into a, our most expanded self, building mental wealth, You know what we're gonna lose in becoming that because we are gonna, we're gonna lose familiarity. We're gonna lose who we were. We're gonna lose patterns that we had, which might mean we're gonna lose relationships we had that require old patterns. But my gosh, you can't see the things you're gonna gain. And I was uh,
1: reminded from a mutual friend of Arziana Robinson who uh, said that, you know, you have to ask yourself, is this danger or is this fear, right? And I think it's as simple as that, you know, just really in that moment, becoming conscious and saying like, am I really in danger or is this just fear, right? Because there is a difference between the two, right? Um, And our nervous system treats kind of all fear the same, right? But we can disassociate the
0: two through our psychology because we have the ability to do so as humans. To build that discernment to learn the difference between the two so we can stop avoiding circumstances that are just fear, not danger, but just fear.
1: And prime ourselves to get comfortable facing the uncomfortable, to prime Mm -hmm. ourselves to lean into fear. Like, you know, one of my mentors, I'll never forget this. I asked him to do something and he said, ooh, like that scares me so, and I, then I, after I was expecting it to follow with, no, I'm I'm okay. But he said, "Ooh, that scares me." So that means I have to do it. And I was like, "Damn, yeah, that really registered with me, and it, it hit me, and and it just showed me how useful it is for your highest quality of life, for your mental health, and for your physical health as well, too." To learn how to always want to lean into your fears, not into real danger, but lean into your fears, and ultimately that builds a lot of resilience, which is an important component of mental health.
0: Well, I feel like we could uh, break this down for hours and keep talking all day. I'm uh, for you listening. One, I know for certain, you can find Kaler's podcast anywhere there are podcasts. And we'll make sure we link that in the show notes, Kayler. Is there any final words or like anything you feel like people in general need to hear right now? And then uh, where people can find more of you? Yeah,
1: thanks, Mark. First off, thanks for having me. I always love riffing with you, and uh, I hope Same. it's not our last conversation that's recorded. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's super fun. Yeah, so you know, I think that I just want to leave people with you know find simplicity if you feel a little bit stuck or if you want to get to that next level in in terms of your mental health simplicity less is more and one of my favorite little sayings that i live by is start small think big grow fast that's what i would leave people with in terms of you know where people can find me you mentioned my podcast you can yeah find it on all uh, different platforms uh you can head to my instagram that's where i you know do a lot of uh put a lot of my messages out there. Uh, It's at the Kaler bets. And if you are interested in any of the concepts that we talked about mental wealth, highest quality of life, you know, we talked about inner peace and purpose. If you just feel a little bit stuck, and you want to kind of go more extensively into some of the concepts that we talked about and talk to us on the phone, uh, you can go to buildmentalwealth.co. That's dot Perfect. C-O. And it has all the information up out there and you can uh, sign up for a call as well to speak with us.
0: I'll make sure we put it in the show notes. My man, I'm so happy we finally got to do this. I appreciate you and your time and your heart and your courage. Thank you, Mark. Ditto.